2: Now, don't be afraid, Bucky. This swaying rope bridge is the only way across that 400-meter chasm. It doesn't look safe, Captain Wolf. Looks can be deceiving, Bucky. This bridge is rewoven every year by the good women of the nearby village Patazibo. They're sturdy souls, and I've taken three of them as wives.
1: If you say so, Captain Wolf.
2: All right, now steady yourself, Bucky, and cast your gaze around. From this bridge, you can see all manner of fauna. Look, there's a red-crested kittiwake, one of only nine left in the world.
3: What are those creatures down in the gorge?
2: Oh, those are aquatic apes, our distant ancestors. Science will tell you they don't exist, but as adventurers, we know better, right? Now let's head to the other side, Bucky.
1: I can't
3: say I'm sorry to be off that bridge, Captain Wolf, but...
2: Oh my god! What are those things? Oh, those are yellow-striped pygmy land whales. These beautiful sea mammals have evolved to live on land in this misty environment. Look, that one knows me from my previous visits. Do we have any of those Norwegian krill bars?
1: You ate the last
4: one on Tuesday.
2: Oh, well, I'll just... Don't step there. There's a Kleinhofer-Main sloth hanging right above you. One swipe of its poison claw could kill you. Maybe it's time to turn back, Captain. We never turn back, Bucky. But it is time to say goodbye to our radio audience. On behalf of my sidekick, Bucky, and the makers of Dr. zote's Intolerant Soap Flakes, this is Captain Agamemnon Wolf saying, Never, Never flinch, always, always fight, fight, on. fight on. The, the greatest, greatest treasure, treasure lies, lies ahead. ahead. Next week, Bucky and I test our courage against the Outer Zealand Hellmouth. Until then, goodbye. Okay, that's a wrap.
1: I wish we could go to some of these places.
2: Are you crazy? And get skin mites? Do you know how many diseases and poisonous insects there are out there? But still, I mean, we've never been anywhere. Look, I know a woman who went to Boston and choked to death on a piece of fruitcake. Believe me, we're better off right where we are. Oh, look, there's a Denny's right across the street. I think they just updated their menu. If you say so. I do say so. But if you want to listen to some reckless nuts who actually go places, listen to this radio show. And now the man who discovered the lost crystal skull of Larry King... Colin
5: McEnroe. So, um, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, we did a show that was all about this wonderful website called Atlas Obscura, which uh, basically the premise of Atlas Obscura, in my words, is that the entire world is a Wes Anderson movie. You know, we just didn't realize that. The entire world is full of goofy and colorful, incongruous, improbable things. Uh, it's just a matter of kind of just, you know, pinning all that down, doing stick pins to all those things. Now, Atlas Obscura is this amazing book. It is it is the most addictive book uh, of the year for me anyway. It's the kind of book that you can get – it's too heavy to um – do this on the toilet, you'll probably cut off circulation in your legs. But it's the kind of thing you want to have with you on the toilet so that you can look at all these amazing things from all over the world, things that are almost uncategorizable, except that they are. So uh, rather than have me ramble any more incoherently, let me tell you who's here. Ella Morton, writer and editor at Atlas Obscura and co-author of the aforementioned new book. Uh, Dylan Thuris is a co-founder of Atlas Obscura and co-author of the aforementioned new book. Uh, Josh Foer uh, is a New Haven resident and and co-founder of Atlas Obscura, and he's also co-author of the new book. It's called Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. Uh, there's a fourth guy who wandered into the studio. I think he's actually there for a different show. His name is David Plotz. Uh, no, he's a journalist and uh, current CEO of Atlas Obscura and a regular visitor to our show, although nowhere near uh, Uh, Regular enough. So, Ella, I'm going to have you kind of get us going here. And for somebody who maybe doesn't know the whole ethos of Atlas Obscura, what this whole thing is all about, and also doesn't know what I mean by saying the world is one big Wes Anderson movie, explain what's the common thread? What's the through line here for all these these many, many, many entries in this book?
0: Sure. Well, Atlas Obscura in general is a guide to the world's hidden wonders. We like to uncover awe-inspiring, surprising things, and we like to show what is out there in the world and what is possible in the world, whether that is a natural wonder or a cathedral that one man built over a period of 40 years.
5: Right. And there is this one-man cathedral. I forget where that is. Where is that, Ella?
0: Uh, that's in Madrid, a former monk by the name of Don Justo, who must be in his late 80s by now and is still working on this cathedral.
5: Um, I would say, I have to say that I have been to one, one thing. I've been to more than one thing that's in this book, but I've been to one thing just because of Atlas Obscura. Uh, and the last time I was going to Montreal, I looked at the actual website, not the book. And, and you do have an entry in the book, The, the Crutches of St. Joseph's Oratory in, in Montreal. And I don't know. Is, does anybody in the room uh, feel confident talking about the crutches uh, of Saint Joseph's Oratory?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, did you make it out there? Oh yeah,
5: yeah, absolutely. yeah. So,
1: so there's. It's funny actually. There's kind of. A, it's, a, it's got a sister kind of um, church in New Orleans, which is also a collection of all these prosthetic arms, prosthetic limbs, crutches. Uh, the one in in Montreal, you know, it's this beautiful building and. I'm trying to recall the reason, like the specific reasons why the crutches are there. I mean, besides sort of people, I think the fundamental idea is that people had these ailments, they were cured, they, you know under the power of God, and this is like
5: honoring that. Right. I mean, I I don't think it gets that much more complicated than that. It's sort of throw away them crutches, and so they do. Uh, And then the crutches just stay there. So, uh, you know, there are things that are – there there are sort of themes that run through this book, and I'll let you guys decide who's going to talk about this. But, for example, in the index, there's a category called very large things. So if you're the kind of person who likes to see very large things – you can sort of make that, I guess, sort of a bucket list. I, I don't know. Do, are there, Does anybody have a particularly particular very large thing that they especially love from this book? Uh,
1: I, I grew up in the Midwest, which is home to many of the world's very large things, as is, interestingly, Australia, where yeah. Ella is from. I think it's something about having too much space. <laughs> you have to fill it with the world's largest frying pan. Uh, I, I've stood in <laughs> the mouth of the world's largest muskie perhaps the most like Minnesotans on the Minnesotan-Wisconsin border. It's at the uh, Fishing Hall of Fame Museum. You know, I mean, that's one kind of category. There's one sort of subset of more, you know, roadside stuff, kitschy stuff. And that's what some people tend to think about when they think about sort of, oh, the oddities, that's where they go. But, you know, we try and cut across a ton of other categories. So we have sort of your abandoned kind of grand ruin set of stuff. We have your You know, outsider art projects like the Don Justo Cathedral. We've got uh, sort of great pieces of forgotten science. The Homedale Horn in New Jersey is this, you know, uh, radio receiver that accidentally discovered the background sound of the Big Bang. And so these are all kinds of places that get left on the margins forgotten. Uh, but to us, they collectively make uh, this collection of, of wonders all around the world.
5: Ella, I do have to ask you about one or two things about Australia, because one of our producers, Betsy Kaplan, is headed there in November. And I enthusiastically showed her the saltwater crocodile tank thing. Can you explain this? This is like, I don't know, you have some kind of plexiglass protection or something while you go into this tank or this where there's this thing in there that wants to kill you.
0: That's right. It's the cage of death at Crocosaurus Cove. <laughs> yes, it's not it's not very enticingly named. They don't euphemise in Australia. <laughs> no. <they are> like... <laughs> yes, well, Australia, as of course everyone knows, is known for its lethal animals, and this is just exploiting that, really. Uh, in the Northern Territory, there's a place called Crocosaurus Cove with saltwater crocodiles. And if you like, you can go in this little plastic enclosure and get lowered down into the pond, where saltwater crocodil- crocodiles will snap their jaws at you. Apparently, a cable holding this cage of death snapped in 2011 and dropped a pair of tourists into the tank with this <laughs> crocodile whose name was Chopper. <laughs> Chopper ignored them apparently, so that was lucky for them, but it's it's a little bit dicey.
5: Right. I you know, it, you know it's in terms of uh, what Plath was saying about euphemizing. I think that there are like a lot of things probably at these Disney World places that are, have names like cage, cage of Death, but they don't mean it. Like yeah. Chopper doesn't know he's you're not supposed to kill you, you know. Yeah, chopper's
0: just being chopper, right? So
5: there's a lot of things that we set up and we call them things like that, and the 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 implied bargain is, oh no, you're not really going to die. Whereas you know, with some of the things in Atlas Obscura, I think that bargain is not as well spelled out. So David Platts, I, I feel as though one of the things that Atlas Obscura does so well is, you know, you go to a place, you're traveling, you're somewhere. And, you know, we've all been in places where we think, well, what what exactly really should I do? You know? And I think maybe the last time we did an Atlas Obscura show, I made fun of Rick Steves and you guys were way too polite to join me. But I mean, you know, you don't want to necessarily go to the thing where you're going to see a lot of other people holding Rick Steves or Fodor's guidebooks. And, and you want to go to something where you'll kind of have a story to tell when it's all over. There was some point that you that that you went there at all. And, and I think Atlas is is a really good answer to sort of an existential question about traveling. Why am I here? That's
3: right. And the reason that Josh and Dylan started Atlas Obscura to begin with was to scratch that itch, the sense that we think we live in a world that is totally mapped and totally comprehended and everything is put in a book somewhere, but actually there remain wonderful corners that are not as well known, not as explored, and are strange and magical. And our goal was to expose those to people, not just expose them, but to give you a chance to say, oh, I can go find this. I can go do this.
5: And uh, Dylan, I think also another part of this is that it, it gets to the um, a reversal, maybe, or, or at least a change in the question of who... Who decides? Who creates the content? So, you know, for, for 100 years or so, there have been, in fact, these very popular kind of formatted travel books where uh, I, I would imagine they have some master plan for you know, telling you which places to go uh, if you're in Paris or San Francisco or wherever it is that you are. But, and, and whatever that master plan is, I assume it's very different, different from Atlas Obscurus. I feel like this is a little bit more open source, right, that people are, are telling you stuff.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, if you go back far enough, you know, travel was all kind of happenstance. There wasn't some guide. You know, it was all sort of by the seat of your pants. And then it got kind of uh, consolidated. It ended up getting you know, put together in in exactly that, these sort of guidebooks, that here is the path. This is exactly what you do. And by creating Alice Obscura in this way where people send in stuff to us, I say, there's this tiny little thing uh, that I grew up next to that no one knows about, but it's totally incredible. I think what we're trying to do is just create a a lot more tributaries off of that that river of travels.
5: And and Josh, I'm also wondering whether there's sort of a generational thing going on. I mean, this is... Going to be an overgeneralization about generations, but you know, my parents belonged to a generation where you know people, for the most part, traveled a little bit more timidly. You know, and there were a lot of bus tours, and you get off the bus, you go see the thing, you get back on the bus, and and then I'm sort of a baby boomer. Maybe we've been a little bit more adventurous in terms of what we want to see or to find the little out of the way thing, or at least go find a bar nobody knows about or something like that. But I feel like the generations that like X and why and and millennials that you guys want to do something else. You really do want to travel more adventurously and see not just the esoteric stuff, but, yeah, maybe the stuff that you'd really have to, as Dylan said, have to have grown up there to know about.
6: Yeah, I mean, what does it mean to be the first generation that can see everything in the world at the click of a button? And I think that changes our expectations about what is out there to see and about like what it means to have an authentic experience as somebody visiting a new place that they've never been to before. And and Atlas Obscura is trying to to cater to that, I think.
5: So, um, and Ella, I mean, this book is uh, is still relatively new. I mean, Atlas Obscura, the website, is less so. Do you guys get a sense of how people are using this? Are they making bucket lists or are they, I mean, are people sort of making some affirmative effort now to hit this thing, hit that thing? What do you hear from the users?
0: Well, there are sort of two approaches because you could look at this book and the website as a list of places to go and you could check them off. But what we're finding is that Seeing these places is inspiring people to look for what might be there in their own backyard, in their own neighborhood, in their own state. So it's not necessarily about making a bucket list, checking off places, but starting to see the world in a totally different way, starting to go down that street that you may have never been on or looking up to see what features might be on a building that could be worth looking into or finding out about the history behind. And that's what we see also when we give the book to people is that they will immediately turn to the place that they are familiar with, the place that they grew up or where they were born. And a lot of them have said to us, oh, wow, this place is right near me and I had no idea that it existed.
3: I I had that experience when I started at Atlas Obscura with this place called the Capitol Stones in Washington, D.C., where I live. And almost literally around the corner from where I grew up is this monument. It's this It's a boneyard for stones that were taken off the Capitol building. It looks like a Mayan ruin in the jungle of Rock Creek Park. There are no signs for it. But it's right near where I live, and I – Atlas had it in there, and I went on a tour that we did. And I thought, my God, this is literally – less than a mile from where I lived. I walked past this a 100 times in my life. And it was totally inspiring to have the chance to discover this new thing that was not across the world. It was around the corner.
5: Right. I thought the Capitol Stones were like the Capitol steps, but they only did Rolling Stones songs. Uh, They did like little parodies. That would be good. no, No, it wouldn't be good, actually. I think we can all agree that wouldn't be good. Um, the um, and and so Dylan to that point I there's I feel like and maybe you all think about this there's no such thing as peak obscura right you're not gonna run out you're barely scratching the surface I assume at this point that that you can do five more volumes of this uh, rather gigantic size and and the world is just gonna keep coughing stuff up
1: it's it seems that way I mean you know the the book has about seven hundred places in it the site has ten thousand. And we do not seem to be coming... You know, we asked this question at the start, are we going to do a few thousand of these places? Sort of feel like, that's it. Wrapped it up. You know, those are the great weird wonders of the world. And what we found, like Ella was saying, it's it's really about a frame of of looking at the world. And it's about finding stories about someplace, sometimes it looks incredibly mundane, but in fact contains the world's quietest room, or, you know, has a unbelievable historical backstory that you never knew. And as you start to see this and know this about the places you are, whether you're living there or traveling there, it brings a kind of depth and context and meaning to the world around you that makes it feel more magical. And I, and I think that's what we're trying to
5: create. And, Ella, you must feel at this point that some countries and some places are sort of punching uh, above their weight uh, and in some uh, really haven't like, jumped in with both feet. Like I looked up, I looked at Guatemala because I'm thinking of going there sometime in the next 12 months, basically just one big sinkhole. You know, that's what, I mean, not Guatemala, but I mean, the, that's what there is right now that you, you must really be thinking, how do we get more into a place like Guatemala? So we really know the, the 10 or 20 other things there are.
2: Yeah.
0: And I mean, it's it's a reflection of where we've been, where our visitors have been. We would absolutely love to get more submissions from Guatemala. It's, you know, we would we would love to encourage people from all around the world to, to tell us what they're seeing in their own backyard. But we do find that there are different flavors in different continents or countries. Europe has a lot of bones, bone churches, ossuaries, catacombs, things like that. Australia has a lot of big things, apparently. That's our claim to fame. So each region has its own sort of flavour.
5: Also, things that want to kill you that 's the other thing we 've covered that about <laughs> australia, but there 's actually a, in the book there 's a rare what we would call a double truck uh, page of Australia just devoted to the things in Australia that want to kill you or at least could if they wanted to um, yeah, you know, and I felt as though and anybody who can can answer this but but actually josh you haven 't been up in a while, so I felt like Iceland, for example, is punching above its weight i mean it 's a tiny little country it 's got an elf museum. It's got this very complicated thing called necropants that's in some kind of witchcraft museum that involve like I don't know the rules for necropants are really complicated they involve uh, uh, putting a coin in somebody's scrotum and and flaying skin I mean it's not something that tourists can really do but I, you sort of feel as though I, maybe it just Iceland's really is e- easy to visit because it's so small uh, and so you can find all this stuff but some some countries seem Almost aggressively esoteric and exciting in ways that Atlas Obscura would like.
6: In fact, Iceland is so aggressively atlasy <laughs> that we are—we're um, now starting to take our community there on international trips. So we've—we've we've just begun in the last year. In fact, in the last couple months, uh, international trips to places like Cuba and Iceland and Myanmar and Bulgaria. To show people the world through the Atlas Obscura lens. And of course, when you think about places to go that are easy to get to, Iceland is top of the list for its wonderful strangeness.
5: Absolutely. We're talking about uh, the new Atlas Obscura book. It is called Atlas Obscura An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. Why don't we grab a quick break here? We'll come back. We'll have another segment. We'll tell you about even more things that you either should or should not do that are out there in the world.
6: Spending the day, just living like a kid, searching for wonders that someone must have hit. Spending the day, just living like a kid, searching for wonders that
3: someone must have
5: hid. Living the summer. We're talking about the new Atlas Obscura book. Uh, we're talking uh, to David Plotz, journalist and current CEO of Atlas Obscura, the website. We're talking to Joshua Foer. A New Haven resident, except during the break he moved to Massachusetts. That was really amazing the way you did that. Uh, And uh, co-founder of Atlas Obscura, and he is co-author of this new book, Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. Other co-authors and people with important roles who are also with us, all joining us from a remote studio, are Dylan Thuris, co-founder of Atlas Obscura, co-author of that book, and Ella Morton, writer and editor uh, at Atlas Obscura uh, and co-author of that book. All right. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. No, no it just took a while to get through all those things. But um, so one thing, um, Dylan, that's in here that's kind of interesting is, and I I mean, I, I confess, this is a very big book with, I think you said, 700 entries or so. I haven't read all of them yet. But every once in a while, I'll read, like, I'm, I am going to Hawaii pretty soon. I've never been to Hawaii. There's something called the Haiku Hike in Hawaii. And it says in Just a reminder, this hike is illegal. Um, And so there are some things in there like that, right, where, like, if you go on this hike and you don't do it right, they will arrest your ass.
1: That's correct. Uh, It's a beautiful hike. It's this incredible set of stairs that climbs the ridge of this mountain. Uh, It is one of the most photogenic places you could possibly imagine. Uh, it is also illegal. But we've got uh, some like don't. tips about how to not get arrested doing it. Well, we there are some you know general outlines of of ways that yeah potentially theoretically one might do it and not get arrested. Of course, sorry, we, we I have a lawyer tapping me on my can't shoulder possibly saying, recommend <laughs> <it. to> "Take <laughs> back <laughs> everything I just said." I can't <laughs> possibly recommend it. Uh, you know, it is you are on your own. Uh, recognizance I, there. I, I think my first
3: encounter with Atlas Obscura, If I remember, is <laughs> Josh and Dylan. In the early days of Atlas Obscura, took a trip and we published some of their uh, their work on Slate. And it didn't it involve, I think, ziplining the highest zipline, or was it rope a, ravine, a rope bridge that was
1: truly horribly Both. treacherous? Yeah, one of each. Uh, <laughs> was... the, the The bridge was actually it was like mildly dodgy because it was towards the end of its cycle. But it's this giant, sometimes called the Last Incan Bridge or the the grass uh bridge uh basically it's it's woven every two years by the villagers uh and is was once part and i guess sort of still is a working piece of the incan uh highway you know it's this giant uh highway that spanned all of South America, so that was great but the other, i mean that was just like culturally historically incredible the zip line was probably a, a less a wise thing to, to have involved I mean, our, you know, when,
6: when, when we travel, we, we not only, each of us individually, use Atlas Obscura as a guide to tell us where to go, but also we're constantly out trying to find mm-hmm. new places that might not already be in the Atlas. And, and Dylan and I were driving all over uh, a remote part of Colombia trying to track down something that we had heard rumor of, which is that there used to be these steel cables that connected... Uh, across valleys, connected villages across valleys, all over the Andes, and we kept driving around. Where's the cable? Where are these zip lines? And we found what we think might be the very last one of these, and it was a giant steel cable uh, spanning a four thousand, uh, sorry, four hundred meter ravine. And Dylan, in a moment of a fit of stupidity that could have <laughs> nearly ended Atlas Obscura at that moment, decided he was going to get a local to take him across.
1: Yeah. So we we met up with, a, when we first arrived at this, they really are like, we're on the roadside. Suddenly it was like, oh, wait, I think that's it. And basically, as you can imagine, steel cable pulled taut and sunk into two chunks of concrete. There are these DIY zip lines that the like loggers and, and uh, locals set up just to save themselves the six hour walk each way. So basically, get there, guy jumps on the zip line, tucks a dog between the legs and goes flying across this thing. And, you know, I decided it would be worthwhile to give it a try, so a couple of seventeen year olds who take this thing every day came, made a little basket out of rope for both of us to sit into. I hugged one of them with with all of my might and and off we went and God, you fly across these things and they take the break, and they as you get towards the other side they start it's the break is like a y shaped piece of wood, and they slam it against the cable and smoke starts flying, and little bits of wood are flying off this thing. And hopefully you slow down enough that you don't slam to the other side, which which we did not. Uh, and then you're there. And then you have to hike up a bunch and take the zipline back the other way. I, I feel, was very happy to I, be alive.
5: I feel as though a few hundred listeners just went, did he say tucked a dog between his legs? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a guy who, I mean, when you got to get your dog across the zipline. Right.
5: That's
6: what you do. <laughs> the lawyer also just tapped me on the shoulder again and said, uh, "To not to recommend that anybody do this." Yes, Gia,
1: yeah, for real.
5: So was you a know, small dog. And Ella, I feel as though you know we we now are. I mean, there are all kinds of things in this book that are just incredibly alluring and appealing, and perhaps people like me and David Plotz, who are a little less reckless, uh, would be attracted to those. But there are things here that I feel as though. You know, the way that I would use this particular entry would be to make sure I avoided it. And so, and I'll give you an example that's kind of similar to what they're talking about. Um, I was reading about the cave, I'm laughing, the Cave of Swallows, which I believe is in a little town called Aquismon, uh, Mexico. And there's, like, even the picture is terrifying. And the only way to really experience this is to, like, rappel down into this horrible abyss of darkness or have someone... Lower you, I, I, I just felt like this would be something I would would make sure I didn't even like peer into. But but I guess there are people who are going to want to do this, right?
0: Yes, I mean, well, the picture for that one is particularly terrifying because it is this vast expanse with people on these thin, thin ropes. It looks very treacherous. It's basically a sinkhole that's over a thousand feet deep. So that's deep enough to fit the Chrysler Building with the Statue of Liberty balancing on top, and BASE jumpers like to fling themselves into this abyss on the regular. Um, it's not so much allowed anymore because it was so treacherous. But that is one of many, many places in the book that you have to take a very strong will uh, and a bit of a bit of disregard for safety, certainly. Um, We have very high things, we have very deep things, we have burning things. Uh, One of our favourites is a 200-foot-wide burning hole in the Turkmenistan desert that was created by these Soviet geologists who were drilling for gas in 1971, came across a cavern and the whole thing collapsed and took their drilling rig with it. And they set the whole thing on fire, thinking it would burn off quickly, and 45 years later it is still burning, and it's spectacular. We actually will, all all three of us, want to go there and just sit by the fire.
5: Right. People say there's nothing to do in Turkmenistan, but that's not true. Um, (laughs) We we know that. Some things even just have great names. Like there's another theme, I think, in this book. Are things that are underground, like tunnels and underground rivers and stuff like that. My my favorite name for one of those things in South Korea, and it's called the Third Tunnel of Aggression. I feel like the Third Tunnel of Aggression should be could be the name for so many things, like in life even. But this actually is. It's right. It's a remnant of the Cold War. Who can who can uh, thumbnail that one for us?
1: I can jump in on the Third Tunnel of Aggression, okay. uh, and so basically, this is a tunnel between the borders of North and South Korea. And it was dug by the North Koreans into South Korea before it was discovered. Uh, it's now been turned into kind of a, a, a tourist site. Basically, yeah. people go and they visit it and they walk it. And then you reach a point where they don't go any further because you would be entering into North Korean uh, territory. But what's crazy is, well, this is sort of the one that's most well-known and opened up the public. There are actually a bunch. There are other tunnels that have been discovered. And there's a whole subculture of South Korean tunnel hunters who go along the border as close as they can get to the DMZ and try and find these other tunnels because it's then they're probably right. Almost certainly there are many, many of these small tunnels that have been secretly dug by the North Koreans into South Korea. So uh, yeah, I really, I would love to spend a day with South Korean Tunnel hunters, that would be a good a good time.
5: And it just would be if they could do the t shirt in English too, just to have the t shirt that says, you know, I visited the third tunnel of aggression. Uh, I would want to have that. There are occasional moments reading this book. This this and it really is this beautiful and exciting uh, book. I can't emphasize how much fun it is. And once you start browsing around, you can't put it down. But. Um, there are occasional moments where I think, OK, they're making this one up. And, and it really does feel a little Wes anderson at that point. And so one of, them, one of the moments when I had that feeling was the, I hope I'm saying this correctly, the Marcapulo Snake Festival, uh, which involves a church, uh, the worship of the Virgin Mary, and European cat snakes. And I'm reading this entry. You guys should describe it more. But I'm reading this and going, eh, now they made this one up. But it's real, right? No, you're right, we made it up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you found the one. We, we put one in there as a test one seven hundred. And, and I gotta say, that was good you. that was a good job. Uh, no, that's in uh, that's in Greece, yeah? Yes, it's in Greece, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Mel, Ella, do you wanna you wanna jump in?
0: Sure. Uh, this is something that happens every August in uh, in Greece. And villages celebrate this festival that commemorates the assumption of the Virgin Mary into heaven. By collecting snakes in bags, bringing them to church. That is
3: not a phrase. That is not a phrase I ever want to hear again, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: Uh, well, uh, so they have the snakes in the bags, and they bring them to church, and these snakes slither over the feet of the parishioners. They they flick their tongues at a portrait of the Virgin Mary, and you place them on children's heads for good luck. So what is wrong with that? It's, it's
5: right. a hellish version of Groundhog Day. <laughs> It hasn't caught on. So, uh, Platzi, you were just in Ireland. Did you do Atlas Obscura? Th- not just in Ireland. You were recently in Ireland. Did you do Atlas Obscury things, either uh, go to places that already already been found or just go hunting in the way that uh, Dylan and Josh have talked about?
3: We did. We went to all sorts of places that were very Atlasy. Uh We went to Glendalough, which is this yeah, been there. ancient monastery town set in the valley of the most astonishing beauty. That was great. Uh, we went to um, a place which I think I've now – it got out of the atlas, which is the Obama rest stop. So Obama has heritage in Ireland. It was right near where we were staying. And there's a Obama rest stop on the highway. And then there's a town which has been trying to make, uh, make meat of its Obama connection. It's where his ancestors are from. And there's the Obama Cafe, and, which is now shuttered, unfortunately. But that was fun to go visit there.
5: So I'm going to ask um, all of you now, I mean, you've been alluding to various things and we've gone flitting by little references to, say, Galileo's middle finger or something like that. But I'm going to ask each of you to just name one last entry that you really treasure from this. So, Ella, maybe you can get it started. Uh, I mean, if there's one that we haven't mentioned that is a special little dear to your heart entry, uh, tell us what it is.
0: Absolutely. Well, I have one that is from the place of my birth, which is New Zealand. I grew up in Australia, but was born in New Zealand. And there are these caves on the North Island. They're called Waitomo. And you go in there and you see the typical things that you would see in a in a more touristy cave, the dramatic stalactites, those sorts of things. And at the very end of your journey through the caves, you enter this rowboat and you get rowed along a lake and it's pitch dark. And all of a sudden you see this light in the distance and what opens up looks like a universe of twinkling stars. It's on the ceiling. But every one of these stars is a glowing fungus gnat that is bioluminescent. And there are these these glowworms that are native to New Zealand, but it just is such an incredible sight that to emerge out of the darkness, this this ceiling full of full of a universe of fungus gnats. I just love it.
5: See that is like straight out of the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. You know, it just is like this thing that probably shouldn't really be here, but is wonderful, and it is. All right, Dylan, you want to go uh, go next? Yeah, I mean, I think I, you
1: have a point, though, in the sense that I think Wes Anderson's been been cribbing from the real world all this time. Yeah, who knew? Uh, <laughs> so I have one. Here's this is this is on my quote unquote bucket list. It's going to be a tough one to get to, but I'm I'm going to do it. It's a place called Blood Falls. <laughs> And it is in Antarctica, in the dry McMurdo Valley. And it is a three-story tall frozen waterfall that is blood red. And besides being like a striking thing out of H.P. Lovecraft, it actually has this incredible scientific story, which is it is the water that is leaking out of a reservoir that's been trapped beneath a glacier for over three million years and separated from all other life on Earth. The microbes in there took their own evolutionary path. And so there's these creatures in there that breathe the iron that's in the water, and that's what makes it red, and they are slowly seeping out. So it's literally this kind of primeval ooze of alien life coming out of the side of a glacier in Antarctica. So that that is a place that I would like to go,
5: I want to say both of you so far. You really sold these places, you know. I mean, they should just record what you say about them. All I'm right, going to go with one okay. closer
6: to home, at okay. least in the the continental U.S. Uh, California City. So the story is in 1958, this eccentric urban planner named Nat Mendelsohn bought up 80 thousand acres in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and he had this grand, ambitious scheme to build a utopian car centric mega metropolis that was going to be bigger than Los Angeles. And he got so far as laying out the entire grid of streets. He went and named every single street in this imaginary city. And that's as far as the project got. Mm. Because, like, really, who was going to want to move (laughs) to the middle of the Mojave Desert? But the thing is, you can still go and visit California City and explore these sand-soft, abandoned streets of this mid-century ghost town. And we have... Uh, This annual event called Obscura Day, where our community all over the world, really on every continent, uh, goes out and explores the kinds of places that are in Atlas Obscura. And a few years back, we had about 400 people from Los Angeles go out in kind of a caravan of cars to go do a photo documentation project of the city. And the amazing thing is people have actually finally started to move in.
5: Well, I think that's sort of that that's a whole theme of stuff, too, that like things that somebody had a dream about that didn't quite work. I noticed, Okay, yeah, you guys do have Arcosanti in in, uh, just north of Phoenix, which is sort of in that category, although, I mean, it's not didn't completely get abandoned, but it's another one of those sort of you know, utopian dreams that sort of kind of sputtered a little bit anyway. Uh, I love Arcosanti. I always make people go there when they're in Arizona. All right, David Plotz, you're a hidden cleanup here. So just drive one over the wall.
3: There are so, so many. And in fact, I I had one I was going to do and then I was just leaving through the book. and I was like, no, I'm going to do this one. So uh, there's a place in India, Cherrapunji, India, which has root bridges. And these are bridges that the villagers of this area have grown across the streams by taking roots of trees and essentially encouraging them to grow across the stream, and these entwined roots of these trees have grown up over decades and longer and over time create a basin a base that is strong enough for people to use as a bridge. and they are just astonishing looking, and I'm desperate to go and, and walk across a root bridge.
5: You know the book is uh, tremendous, and I, I have to say that somehow or other we wound up with a, a bunch of copies here. And you would have been so happy to see us, uh, me and two or three producers, sitting around a table, each with our copy of Atlas Obscura and Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders, just sort of leafing through it and and lo- look at this and look at that, and coming back always to the necro pants because that's just the way we roll here. But um, so anyway, this has been so fun to talk to you guys about. The book is really really fun. Uh, David Plotz, always great to talk to you. And then the three. Authors on this book, uh, Joshua Foer, Dylan Thuris, and Ella Morton, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank
5: you. For Thanks you. for nice. yeah. And say no to the Cave of Swallows. Don't go in the Cave of Swallows. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. We'll tell you about some things, you know, in, in the spirit of Ella Morton. We're going to talk to you, a guy who is focused very specifically on the environs in which I sit right now and tell you about some of those things that are near you that you don't know about. I'm
0: going to make a map. My neighborhood. I'm gonna draw in the houses, fill in the trees, document everything I see. I'm gonna start a list of where I wanna go. All those
2: far. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and made Kayon Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Rick Steves. Don't miss any of our shows. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And now, back to Colin.
5: So you've just heard us talk to the guys from Atlas Obscura, the people from Atlas Obscura. You know, there's just only so much detail that they can go into about sort of Connecticut when they're trying to cover the whole world. There are a lot of interesting things in Connecticut, and here to talk more about them, things that could be... In the Atlas Obscura book, Uh, but there are so many of them, they don't never all fit. It would just be a Connecticut book Uh, is uh, Zachary Lamott. uh, His latest book is called More Connecticut Lore, a guidebook to 82 strange locations. So welcome back to our show, Zach. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And first of all, you grew up, I think if you're going to collect sort of mysterious lore, Uh, from strange places. You have a sort of a natural advantage growing up in eastern Connecticut, right? If you're going to see a UFO, if you're going to see a ghost, if you're going to see a space-time vortex, the odds are, I mean, would you agree that the odds are way up if you're in eastern Connecticut?
4: Absolutely. Even though some towns like Sterling might, cows might number people a tenfold, but um, there's certainly enough weird to go around
5: Sterling has has a space-time vortex. Cows fall out of that space-time vortex from other times and places. So, yes, Sterling would be in that. And so, for example, and, and I think, you know, in your book, you can sort of divide things up into something that you could go see. Like you could take this book and march off and go see this landmark. And, and we can mention a few of them. Right. And then other places where – it's more like if you wanted to walk around in a certain place, like the Patchog Forest, maybe you can give us a sense of that. Like You could go to the Patchog Forest and we can't guarantee that you're going to see a ghost or be abducted by a UFO, but you're going to be in a place where that kind of thing is a little bit more front and center than it might be sure. someplace else. Yeah. Sure.
4: I mean, Patchog Forest has a number of tales coming from the forest itself as well as just the area surrounding it, the most famous being the story of Maud, which uh, I wrote about in my first edition of Connecticut lore, and since then have heard many, many other variations than the ones that I, I put into the into the story. Uh, the real story is of of a little girl who who uh, who died. Uh, the one that I heard growing up most famously was of a uh, woman who was called a witch and was buried alive, which is very far off from the actual Maud.
5: Do people still? I mean, in other words, they think that they see her. Uh, yes, from time to time, right?
4: Yes, they think they see her. They, they, there's also stories about a woman who who a, a young boy ripped up her lilac flowers mm-hmm. and the and she ended up killing him and burying him in in her in her yard many years ago. And the smell of lilac still still occur. There's there's stories of shrieking. Um, there's Native American tales. There's there's uh, ghosts of soldiers. So every any kind of any kind of historical. Uh, ghost. There, there they are in Patchogue Forest.
5: Right, and so in the, in general, the Eastern Connecticut kind of works that way. The UFO section of your book right. is almost all Eastern Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I love the one where the nuns see something. I think they're in a road in Scotland, Connecticut, right. or someplace. True. They see something yes. and they won't tell anybody what it is. Yep. But yeah. then they also won't go drive on that road ever again.
4: Right. It's a Waldo Road in Scotland that they going from Scotland to where they uh, they worked at the the church in Baltic. Taking that road, they wouldn't talk about what happened. But other people have said that the power plant there is an actual UFO charging station.
5: So they're like electric cars or something they have to plug in once in a while? Exactly. They, they're yeah. not here
4: that much anymore because they get, they get better gas mileage. Right. But back in the, the 60s, there, you know the tanks were smaller.
5: So let's talk about one more of these kinds of uh, generalized spooky places and then we can talk a little bit more about specific stuff because uh, your book actually has a lot of historical stuff and I know you got very interested in the history of, for example, blast furnaces in Connecticut. But before we come to that, so one thing I think we all agree is that Dudley town I won't even say where that is, it's kind of an over-explored, abandoned place and you feel kind of bad for the property owners out there because there's still people running around looking for ghosts or the Blair Witch or something like that. Dudleytown alone, but there is one called Barra Hack, which I I think I had heard about before, but didn't know much about. Why don't you tell us about Barra? Barra Hack Is
4: is basically Eastern Connecticut's version of Dudleytown. It's the same kind of abandoned village, ghost town, if you will, uh, with cellar holes and foundations that has had a bit of a paranormal attitude about it. I guess you'd say. Basically, the story was of, of a family, the Higginbotham family, that, that lived there. And eventually, the, for various reasons, the, the town ceased to exist. But people say since then they've seen ghosts. They've heard voices. It's actually named the Village of Voices. And, and that's the biggest thing that if you're there that you can hear an active village.
5: I could tell in this book you got interested also, I mean, and this is maybe even a little bit more typical of what's in Atlas Obscura, just sort of stuff from the past that's kind of still there. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Do you want to talk about furnaces? It's the first thing in your book, and I get the feeling somehow or other that it really seized your imagination.
4: So the furnace idea was basically taking in Connecticut's early industrial heritage. If you're in the northwest corner around the Salisbury area, and in in particular in uh, the region of Canaan, there's... lots of of remnants of its industrial past. So you'll have these blast furnaces like the Beckley Furnace that you can visit today and there's still traces of what it once was. And it's sort of neat how to make these they had to take down the nature around it and now after it ceased operation, the nature has once again overtaken the industrial site.
5: Yeah and I I find that with these furnaces or forges that um, a lot of folklore and and stuff grows up around them. For example, you allude to this in the book, but uh, in in, uh, Salisbury, there was an area called Mount Riga. There was a forge there. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. Constitution's uh, anchor was uh, forged in that forge. Mm -hmm. But there was also sort of a community of people who worked there. And then there's something that can happen to these forges where, like, something builds up in it and the forge kind of shuts down and it can't be started up again. And when that did, they became... This kind of remnant, all the I, there's this kind of slur up in that area called Raggy. That uh, at least when I was writing about it, I traced back to the Mount Raga community that worked on that forge. It's kind of like maybe people who stayed up on that mountain a little bit too long, something like that. Um, well, you know, I mean, there's stuff in this book, as we say, that are that's folklore, and we can go back to some of the folk tales in a second. But there's also just stuff like I didn't know there was a Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Museum. Yes, there is in, in Bethany, Connecticut. In, is that in word? Bethany,
4: yeah. uh, it's a gentleman named Rick Koletsky who has it in his house. He's he had been uh, to see Ali fight numerous times. He's spoken uh, to Ali on the phone. He has a, a book called "Against the Ropes" about his experiences with Ali, mm. and it's just a, a place that's
5: dedicated solely to Muhammad Ali. So um there are some interesting sort of folktales and like there're folktales about these sort of John Bunyan like figures uh, in Connecticut. There's one called Elmer Bitgood. You want to tell us about Elmer Bitgood? Sure. So Elmer Bitgood
4: was really Connecticut's version of of Paul Bunyan. He's a larger than life character who was a legend not only now but in his own time. He was he was reputed to be over six feet tall and three hundred and fifty pounds. In reality, I believe he was around 5'9 to ninety, mm-hmm. which was still certainly a a big guy, but not this sort of uh, superhuman. But superhuman he was in his strength. So lifting and also his appetite. So he was known uh, really all over the region for both his ability to lift items, big boulders. Um, he had he used to work at a sawmill, so. He was known to put on these sort of like strongman shows by the saw, by the sawmill. But he was also known for his appetite, stories that him and his brother Duane go into a church bean dinner and order five admissions per person and then eat everything in sight. So it's really neat hearing those kind of stories but also knowing that these were circulating when he was alive as well.
5: Right. I like the one where he – Supposedly, this seems apocryphal somehow, but that he had lifted a train car above his head yes. for a sum of money, but then refused to put it down because they hadn't paid him yet, right, right? Until he got the money. Although it seems to me that that works in Elmer's to Elmer's disadvantage somehow. That's like true. He has to hold the train car over his head until he gets paid.
4: Exactly. I mean, what's, what's going to go first, the money or the right. train? If I were the
5: guy with the money, I'd say fine. Go ahead, right. hold the train car over your head. See if I care. Uh, it's not like I need it right now. And so this is that's a Valentown story. We're in eastern Connecticut the Absolutely. Are, and mm-hmm. so we might as well stay there. Let's do one more. This would be Jemima Wilkinson in nearby Ledyard, Connecticut. So Jemima
4: Wilkinson was born to a Quaker family in Rhode Island. And this is where the story veers off a bit. So around her early 20s, let's say 24, be it the year 1776, she uh, falls ill and dies. When they're about to put her in the ground, somebody opens the lid to get one last look, and she's actually alive. And oh, there, there it is! She has now seen the light, and it's her now mission from from God to spread the good word. So Jemima starts with her group of Jemimakins and travels all through through New England into Pennsylvania and into New York. Now, some people saw her as a as a savior of sorts, and some people thought she was a con artist. And this, the the interesting part was that in Ledger, everyone knew her as Jemima Wilkinson from Ledger, this happening Ledger. In looking through more of the historical texts, Ledger wasn't a town during mm-hmm. this time. And in addition to that, she wasn't placed anywhere in this part of Connecticut. Uh, she was known that the, the group her group ended up settling in Pennsylvania for a little while and then up into New York State founding the towns of Jerusalem and Penyan. Penyan named after Pennsylvania and Yankee were the two areas she was from. So there's a lot of a lot of different stories with her, but I thought it was sort of neat and just shows you what a folk tale is that here's someone who who actually lived that was placed in one town and then in the other texts was never there at all.
5: Uh, We're talking to Zach Lamott. Uh, He's the author of More Connecticut Lore, his second book. This is a guidebook to 82 strange locations, Uh, our own Atlas Obscura for Connecticut. Uh, Thank you, Zachary Lamott. Thank you.